Well, welcome to Grace uh, once again. Glad all of you are here with us this morning. For those of you who do not know who I am, my name is Michael. I am the Fremont campus middle school pastor and the young adult pastor, and uh, just honored to be here. And we are going through a series called Sola, and it's, we're discussing five truths of the Christian faith, and Sola, the Latin word for alone. So we're talking about five alones that describe, that define uh, the gospel. And uh, week one, we had a sentence or a phrase to summarize kind of the entire series, that according to Scripture alone, through faith alone, we are saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And to set up the, the context of the series, week one, Zach talked about kind of the uh, church history after Jesus, after the disciples, throughout the years of church history, uh, not everyone, but a large measure of the church had gotten away from, from sticking to God's word. And in the early 1500s, that's kind of when uh, this change happened, when people had greater access to scripture. And so people were able to get their hands on the Bible and they started reading their Bibles, and they would compare and go, wait a minute, this doesn't line up. Like, God's word says this, but the church is teaching this. Or wait, God's word says these things, but the Catholic church is doing these traditions. And that was around until uh, a a guy named Martin Luther, who kind of led that charge publicly, In 1517, he went to a church in Germany, went to the front door, and nailed 95 theses onto a door, or 95 topics, things that, hey, this is what we're getting wrong. This is where we need to get back on track. And um, Martin Luther, that Catholic priest, he was the one to, to kind of officially begin what we call the Protestant Reformation. And although along the way there were always churches that stuck to God's word, there was still a huge emphasis to make sure that Christians weren't being led by culture, to make sure they weren't being led by their own personal opinion or political power, but by God's word. And that's what we talked about week one of the series, how scripture is our authority. It is scripture alone where we find truth. And then last week, uh, we talked about faith, how it is faith alone that we're able to place our, our, our trust in God. And this week, uh, we are talking about sola gratia, by grace alone. And to give us a foundation of, of, uh, for this message, if we read the Bible, we find kind of a basic definition of grace. And so here's what it is. Grace is God's goodness on those who deserve only punishment. God's goodness on those who deserve only Punishment. So grace is unmerited favor. You can't do anything to earn it. In fact, if you add anything to grace, it wrecks the essence of what grace is. If you add anything to grace, it ruins it. And to give us even more direction of where we're going, uh, if it's okay with you guys, I'm going to share a story real quick. Uh, And it's actually about one of my coworkers, Tim Wilson, who uh, a lot of you may not know him, but he is the Fremont Campus Music Director. So Blaine leads campus here at Tiffin, uh, but Tim does Fremont. Maybe you've seen him on the live stream or things like that uh, if you haven't been to the Fremont Campus. But uh, Tim, I just want to share a story about him real quick. And when I mean a story, I just mean something he did. I blew it out of proportion, and here I am talking about it now. But uh, it was when he first got on staff. The year was 2017. Tim 
moves from Texas to Fremont, Ohio. And within the first few weeks of him being on staff, we went uh, out to lunch uh, with some of the people at Grace. And, and so we went to Casa Fiesta, just a Mexican restaurant in Fremont. And uh, when we went there, we got inside, got down to our table. And as soon as we get there, uh, the best part of any Mexican restaurant meal, right, is the chips and salsa. So they bring that to the table. Now, I know you know this already, but let me just set the, set the context here, all right? When you get chips and salsa, you have two main bowls, correct? You have your salsa bowl, which usually is yours. No one else is affected by that. No one else dips from it. It's yours, right? And then you have your chip bowl, which is bigger. It's like the community chip bowl that other people share from it. So if those chips were altered in any way, it would impact the lives of those around you, correct? Okay, you're tracking with me, all right? I sit down, and he's sitting across from me. I look over, and Tim is just dousing salt on these chips. And when I say dousing, I mean it was raining salt on his side of the table. And I, I'm just going to confess some sin to you. I was angry, all right? I was outraged. I don't know why, but it just triggered me. And I'm like, Tim, Tim, what are you doing? And he looks at me kind of dumbfounded like, I'm putting salt on the chips. Why? And in my anger, I began to lay out my 19-point argument of, hey, this is why it's not okay for you to be doing this. One, chips are fine. You don't need to add salt to them, okay? Nothing needs to be added to them. Two, that's not your place, all right? Don't impose your salt on my food. Like, this is shared with other people around you. And you didn't even consider. You didn't ask. You just went for it. And I was getting so worked up, and maybe you can tell because it's four years and I'm still not over it. But... I was getting so worked up that one of our tech guys on staff at the time, his name was Ben, he's sitting next to me. He says, Mike, I've never seen you like this before. Like, are, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not okay. This is ridiculous. And at this point, I'm mad at everybody at the table, all right? I'm mad at our entire staff because I'm just sitting here thinking, like, is no one going to address this? Is this a culture that we're allowing, like, for this new guy to get away with it? I'm mad at our lead pastor, Pastor Kevin, for hiring this guy. I'm mad at... I'm still mad at Tim, thinking, who does this Texan think he is? Like, this is just not okay. And again, this is my first few weeks of knowing Tim. And so I'm still forming my opinion of him. And for me, I'm pretty big on first impressions. And because of that, to this day, I don't like him. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I actually heard some, oh, <laughs> no. I, I love Tim. I'm glad he's on staff. He does a great job. But uh, I, I actually called him two Fridays ago and said, hey, do you mind if I tell that story about when you wrongly salted the chips? And he said, you mean when, I, when you wrongly got upset about it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that time. But I tell that story uh, because much like my Casa experience where I'm telling Tim, don't add anything, it's fine, nothing needs added to them. In the same way, nothing needs to be added to the message of grace. In fact, if you do add anything to it, if we try to add any work or any effort, it's no longer grace. If you add anything, that, oh, yeah, you have to trust in Jesus, his death and resurrection, but you also have to make sure your life is a good one. You have to live it right. Or you got to make sure also to go to church, to give, to pray, to be baptized. It is grace alone. And to help us understand that, I want to take us to a passage in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul is writing, and he's actually in Rome under house arrest, and he's writing for a few reasons, but mainly to encourage these Christians 
to grow in their faith and also to promote unity. That he's saying, hey, make sure you're committed to the church and each other while you're committed to, to truth. And this passage really well uh, shows that we are saved by grace and grace alone. And it's a well-known por- well portion of the letter, if not the most well-known. But what Paul tells us, that he's trying to talk about grace, but Paul's like, hey, before we even get to grace, we need to understand ourselves. That before we can get to what God has done for us, we need to understand our own heart. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 say this, describing us before Jesus. And you were dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air. And that phrase is just a reference uh, to Satan. The spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. Carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath. As the others were also. When it comes to understanding grace, this is where it starts. Having an accurate view of ourselves. Paul says, hey, first thing. Christians, before Jesus, you were dead. And I'm guessing not too many of us differ on the definition of dead, right? We get it. Lifeless. Unable to help oneself. Paul says, your heart was beaten. You were physically alive, but you were spiritually dead. And because of that, you were alienated from God. That you were separated from him. And not only that, but it says you followed the ways of this world. The world promoted and energized by Satan himself. And he says, you were following Satan. And most of us were probably thinking, well, okay, hold up. That sounds a little harsh, right? Like even if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't follow Satan. That's, that's a little too far. But the Bible says that our heart and minds were bent on doing wrong. That we lived in a way that opposed God and fell more in line with Satan's, uh, what he wanted us to do. And it says that we, as we look at Satan's influence in this world, it's not equal to God's. It's not even close. But he still does influence and have a large uh, effect on this world today. And it says that as we followed that direction in the way of the world, that we fulfilled the desires and inclinations of our heart. That whatever we wanted to do, we did it. And those desires were innately evil. Like we don't naturally want to honor God. But we are naturally, it says, children of wrath. As a result of us being sinful, we are children of wrath. Meaning that there was a point where all of us were going to have to pay the penalty for our sin. The fact that we have sinned against a perfect, eternal, holy God. And that sin involves a punishment. And that punishment is for us to spend eternity in hell because of our disobedience. And it's, it's a tough yet deserving sentence. And there's nothing we can do on our own to solve it. Now this, uh, as Paul is talking about our hearts and who we are, none of us really want to think about this. Like, I, I don't even want to think about the truth of what this is saying. Because I feel like most of us have a pretty optimistic outlook on people. It's like, well, people aren't bad. They just do bad things. Or, okay, you know what? 
I'll give it to you. There's a few bad ones, but the majority of us, we're okay. And we compare ourselves to the people on the news and in our history books and say, well, I'm not that bad. I haven't done, you know, sin to that level or I haven't done like the major sins. Okay, I'll admit it. I'm no Billy Graham, but I'm not Hitler. <laughs> like I fall somewhere in between there. And Hitler, that's a guy, he's wicked, he's bad. He probably falls in line more with Satan's agenda than I would. But the problem is the Bible's saying that we wrongly believe that our heart is any better than someone like that. We wrongly believe that we are more deserving of forgiveness than somebody else. Because the problem is not just out there. The problem is not the world, is not others. It is in our own heart. And the issue is that we're using the wrong standard. Verse 3 says that all of us were children of wrath. All of us uh, fall into the category of falling short of the standard of God. And so because of that, we should not compare ourselves to others. That's not how we find like, uh, our, our righteousness. Because if we're just being completely honest, all of us could probably find at least 10 people that if we compared our life to theirs, if we compared our bad things with their bad things, our good deeds with their good deeds, we could find people that when we compare ourselves to them, we would categorize them as worse than us, right? Now, I'm not saying make that list now, <laughs> okay? Don't look around the room and go, you're number seven, you're number four. No, don't do that. But that's what we do. We think, oh, well, I'm not that bad or I'm slightly better than them. And that's not it. Instead, we want to compare ourselves to God, who is the true gauge of holiness. And you'll find that his standard is one that's too high to reach. And so what Paul is saying is we are spiritually lost. And not lost like, hey, we're out in the wilderness or forest somewhere, and you know what, I may find my way out. This cannot be remedied by human means. Because sin is at the core of who we are. And this picture that's painted of us isn't all that appealing, right? And I, I know I've spent the last five minutes cheering us up and telling us how great we are, but it is so important to understand because we will not grasp the value of salvation until we understand how sinful we really are. And I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you, for me, this was me. This was what I had to understand this is what kept me from placing my salvation, or, or sorry, my trust in Christ. That before I was saved, I knew God. I knew that he loved me. I knew he created me. I knew Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I knew those things. But what I couldn't wrap my mind around was, wait a minute, why do I deserve hell for my sins? Like I compared myself to my classmates, to my friends, and it's like, well, I'm not as bad as them. Would God really punish me for the small sins I've done? And I remember the moment that it all came together for me. It was actually when I was in middle school. It was at Kalahari Retreat. And uh, it was after the session, like 90% of the room had kind of filtered out. And I was in the front row just staring at the stage in an empty, uh, a blank screen. And it clicked for me that I was lost. That I was not at peace with God. That I was more connected with God's wrath than I was God himself. And again, this picture of us, it looks bleak 
It looks desperate. It looks hopeless. But we're only three verses into this chapter. And verse 4 has two of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. The verses 1 through 3, it says that we were dead, that we are broken, that we have rebelled against God, that we were following Satan, that we do not deserve anything that God has given us, that we are children of wrath. And then we have verse 4, but God. All those things are true. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. You can put whatever you want before but God, doesn't matter. You can say, yeah, I, I've lived a pretty bad life, I've, I've messed up in the past, but God. No, like, you don't understand. I've done some awful things. I've hurt people. I don't even know if I can forgive myself, let alone God to forgive me. But God. Wait a minute. Didn't the first three verses just tell us how broken we are and how lost we are and how much we do not deserve it? <laughs> Very true. But God. Verses 4 through 5 say that his mercy, too rich. Love, too great. And that's the thing is that God isn't obligated to do any of this for us. That he doesn't owe us anything, but he still loves us. And when God says that he loves us, it's not just this casual, non-committed, like, yeah, I love you. He means it and he shows it. And the greatest form of his love, his greatest expression that it is true, that he actually cares and loves for us, is him sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. The Bible says that Jesus, that he who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And because of that love, when we were stuck in our sin, he saved us by grace. And this is where I want us to, to go back to hopefully having our idea of grace just expand this morning. That remember, grace is God's goodness on those who deserve only punishment. Paul has set this up, that we are lost, that we deserve only punishment. But he chooses to give us grace and he loves us anyway. And notice in, these, uh, in this passage, notice who the initiator is. Like notice our part and then God's part. Notice our actions are not the focus, but the focus is on what God has done in his actions. Because often it seems like we want to believe or we want to act like we saved ourselves. Like, yeah, I know Jesus died for me, but I chose him. I decided to become a Christian. I finally came around and I accepted him. Yes, but notice God's part and notice our part in this. Like, what did we do in this passage? It says, we rebelled. We followed sin. We strayed. We were dead. And then now what did God do? It says that God saved us. God made us alive. God rescued us from our sin and from our punishment. And not only that, it keeps getting better. Verse 6, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying, not only are we alive, but we get to share in his glory. That no longer are we following Satan's ways, but God's. And our citizenship 
forever is in heaven and not this world. And it hasn't happened yet, but God says, hey, it's a sure thing. And so when he says that we have been seated with Christ uh, in heaven, it's not literally, but it's a figure of speech. And the significance of that is that what is Christ's is ours. And so if we are united with Christ and he is seated at the right hand of God, that's where we are too. It's, it's kind of like this. Um, it's kind of like going to a wedding reception. Now, I'm imagining uh, that a lot of us have been to a few weddings this summer. And so normally you go to the ceremony, they get married, uh, and then you go celebrate even more at the wedding reception. And usually, not always, but usually there's assigned tables, right? Like you, gotta, you walk in and then you'll find your name on the list or what table you're at. Okay, It's a bit more significant if I'm seated at the head table versus table 19, right? Like, because at table 19, I'm with, like, some aunt and uncles that I don't even know. It's way in the corner. It's dingy. The light isn't so great. It's farthest away from the food. Not a great place to be compared to the head table where if I'm there, I would be marked as one of the most important or closest people to the bride and groom. And usually the closer you are to them, the better your seat. And if it's that way with us and Jesus, the closer you are, the better your seat. The Bible says that we are together with Christ. Galatians 2.20 says that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's pretty close. And so we are saved, made alive, and he doesn't just put us anywhere. He says, no, you're with me. You're at the head table. You get to share in my power, in my authority, in my glory forever. And that's good news. And now we may be reading this passage and we may go, okay, wow, that is awesome news. That is great that God has done that for us. But why? Like why would he go out of his way? Why would he take his creation that, have, uh, that has rebelled against him? that they are broken, they are sinful, why would he save them, offer them grace, and raise them up with Jesus to be in heaven? Is it just because he loves us? Verse 7 gives us insight to what that answer is. He does all of those things so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So God... He shows grace to us and for us, yes, but it's not only for our benefit. That God's purpose in salvation is also for his own sake. That he did this not just because his character is great, but to show that his character is great. God wants to showcase his glory. He wants to show off his capability. After all of our running towards sin and us pursuing wrong things and us living with no purpose and no meaning, God wants to show us, hey, I am what truly and eternally satisfies. And he wants to show that he can take us, broken, rebellious, sinful people. And he says, hey, I'm going to take them. I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to save them. I'm going to make them alive. I'm going to seat them with heaven or with Jesus in heaven. And I'm going to use them for my glory. God wants to show that. Through us. And this isn't, I know it may seem like it, but it's not selfish for him to do this. 
because he is doing what's best for us. And what's best for us is for us to live a life of worship to him. And so he wants to show for eternity the magnitude of his grace. And uh, just in case we missed it, he gives a summary in, in 8 through 9. He says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. We are saved by grace through faith. You didn't do it on your own. It was a gift from God. Now, uh, you may also be wondering, okay, wait a minute. It's not grace alone because we need faith too, right? Like it's not grace because we, we have a part in this. And so it says we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And faith is necessary because faith is how we obtain God's grace. A definition for faith would just be our trusting response to God's revelation. That he has shown us who he is, he has offered us grace, and then we, in return, can place our trust, our belief, our faith in him. And uh, we talked about faith last week, and something that Cameron said that, that I loved, he said, where we place our faith matters. Where we place our faith matters. That we can have all the faith in the world and whatever religion, whatever God you want, but if it's not true, then you're out of luck. And even Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, look, you can have faith, but if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. He says, you, you can have all the faith in the world, but guess what? If this isn't true, if the gospel isn't reality, then you're out of luck. And so our faith needs to be placed in the right thing. And faith is not merely this superficial verbal response. And faith isn't even intellectually agreeing with things about the Bible. A saving faith is a willful choice to accept these things. And so faith is needed because it's the means by which we receive grace. Faith is accepting his free gift. And it's important because we can't accept something that's not first offered to us. We can't accept something that God didn't first present to us or offer us. It'd be like a, if you walked into a job interview. Let's say you really haven't even started the process yet. You walk in for an interview. Uh, you meet them for the first time. You shake their hand and you say, I'll take it. Take what? What do you mean? I, I'll, I'll take the job. Uh, thank you so much. I cannot wait to be working here. Should I take the, the desk in the corner? Uh, can I get one of the nameplates that says Mr. Miller on it? I would love. Now, they're going to think you're crazy. Why? Because they haven't offered you anything yet. And in the same way, before we can respond to God, God offers us grace. From first to last, that's where it starts. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. Paul says don't boast like we did that we did not have a part in saving ourselves. It's all God. And uh, I don't know where all of us are at spiritually in a room, you know, with this many people. Um, some of us have made that decision to trust in Jesus and his life, his death, and his, res his resurrection for our sins. Some of us, my fear is that we still have a, a wrong understanding of what God is trying to get us to, uh, to comprehend. 
a lot of us may have this wrong idea of Christianity, of the gospel, of the Bible, and I do not want us leaving here with that mindset. Because a lot of us may think, yeah, I'm good with Jesus, I'm good with the Bible, I'm good with God, but, you know, he just wants us to live a good life. Like, he wants us to do good, he wants us to be better, but that is not at all what the Bible is painting. The message of the Bible is not try harder. The message of the Bible is you can't. The message of the Bible is you can't, but God did. And so he didn't come to give us a second chance. He didn't come to give us this like pep talk for moral improvement. He came to rescue you from our sins and to offer grace. And so we cannot grow cold to this truth of what God has done for us and in us. And we uh, don't want to think that we earned it or that we think we deserve it more than anyone else. In fact, we should view ourselves as the people who deserve grace the least because we understand our sin and we know what we have done against God. Uh, Martin Luther, the guy who we talked about in the Reformation, early 1500s, we read about his life and we actually kind of get a snippet of uh, his last moments before he died. And he committed his entire life to teaching and preaching the Bible. But he went back to his hometown and he actually went there to just kind of settle um, a dispute between two people there. And so he did that. He preached a little bit. But eventually he got sick. And uh, at the end of his life, he is on his deathbed. And what's on his mind is grace. That we actually know the last words that he ever communicated. And uh, they weren't spoken whether he couldn't speak or he didn't want to, I don't know, but they were written. And they found a scrap of, pe- scrap of paper next to his bed on a table that had a few sentences. But the last two things, last two sentences said this. said, we are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. He's thinking about grace, about this idea that we are so unworthy, but yet we are so welcomed to God's presence about how it's not about what we can do for God, but it's about what God has already done for us. That we, when we approach God, all we can do is have this attitude, this mindset, all we can do is hold up empty hands because we know we cannot bring anything to the table to offer him. It says that we are beggars. Welcome to the table of God, that he displays his love for us despite our brokenness, despite that we think we're entitled, despite that we think we are good people, he loves us and offers us grace. And what did we do to deserve it? What did we do to deserve God saving us, declaring us righteous, and adopting us as his children? What do we do to deserve that? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And when we can wrap our minds around that, that is where things begin to change. There's so many areas that we can directly apply this concept of grace to our lives. When we understand grace, it changes our attitude. It instills gratefulness in us. That when we realize what we should have received compared to what we do receive, that we don't have to be focused on our circumstances, but we can be focused on the unchanging truth of the gospel. It also changes how we view ourselves, that we know it's not up to us to hit this level of righteousness, 
It's not based on our performance, but it's all about what God has done for us. It also changes how we view others because we don't view anyone else as better or worse than us, but we view them as people in need of grace, just like us. And now we have an opportunity to showcase what God has done for us and show grace to others because God has shown it to us. And it also changes how we view God. <laughs> that we can just reflect on how great he is, that he didn't do these things out of obligation, but he did them out of generosity, out of his character. And that just like the passage talks about, we can just look back and be amazed at how immeasurable his grace is. I was actually getting ready um, for this message and preparing for it, and I was talking uh, to Pastor Zach, and he had a, he had a line in there <laughs> that I liked a lot I want to um, share right now. He says, grace is unlimited and unconditional in scope, but not in duration. And he first said it, and I was like, what the heck? But it makes a lot of sense, and what, he, what it means is that his grace is unlimited. That means no matter what, once we accept it, it covers everything we've ever done. All of our mistakes, all of our shame, all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our past mess-ups, and it covers it. And also it's unconditional that no matter what, all of us have the opportunity, no matter what our past or our lives look like, we can accept it and we can benefit from God's grace but it's not unconditional, it's not unlimited in duration, meaning there is a time where our opportunity to accept God's free gift is gonna run out. That we're not gonna be alive forever, we don't know when that is, when our time is up, we don't know how long we're gonna have, but it's not gonna be there forever. And so we want to accept God's offer of forgiveness, of salvation, of eternal life while we can now. And because when we do that, the last thing and honestly the biggest thing that can change is our eternity. Early on in Jesus' ministry on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he, he kicks things off in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 uh, with this verse. And this is where he starts. This is his foundation. He says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what he's saying is, look, it, to be a Christian, to know that you'll be spending eternity in heaven, to know that you can be a part of God's kingdom, it doesn't mean that you have it all together. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Because this phrase, poor in spirit, if we look at it, the word poor, it doesn't just mean lower class. It doesn't just mean struggling to make ends meet. It means utterly impoverished. It means completely dependent on others. And it has this idea of a beggar. And so it starts accepting this free gift of grace. It starts with acknowledging that apart from Christ, we are spiritually bankrupt. But with Christ, we are made alive. And it starts and it ends with grace and grace alone. Let's go ahead and pray um, before we close. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for revealing yourself to us. God, we thank you 
in spite of our sin, while we were sinners, God, we are broken, we are undeserving, we are sinful, we are, God, just people who don't deserve your love, don't deserve your favor, but you extend it to us anyway. And I thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you most of all for the gospel, for you sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And God, I pray if there's anyone in this room that hasn't made that decision yet, that they would go out of their way to, to think about it, to process it, to maybe even ask uh, one of us here or a friend or a family member that brought them that they trust God, that they would not leave this building, that they would not end today without knowing for sure that they have trusted in your grace that you provide. That it's not about what we can do. We can't earn it. God, we have done nothing to contribute to our salvation, but it's all based on what you have already given to us. And help us to live that out in every area and every single day of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.